I must say my heart was perfectly all right until I was in my mid-sixties, except for the fact that as an open heart it was probably broken every month from the time I was nine until the time I was 70. Why did you choose to focus on the heart? It sits in this weird positioning. In the one sense, if we go back to this view of the body as a machine, then the heart is just a pump. That's all that it is. It's just an engine. And that's a coherent and widely held view. But there's also this view of the heart as being the epicenter of love, of emotion, of what it is to be human. This is the seat of those kind of intangible aspects of personal identity. The heart is the icon for love on like Valentine's Day, for example. And we use the heart as a kind of metaphor in an everyday language. I knew it in my heart or I loved him with all my heart, you know, it's, it's replete with these different emotions. I had you know, a quadruple heart bypass. I mean, it's an easy operation nowadays, but it's quite an interesting one. I mean, it, it's changed since. Um, but, I mean, you were, I tell you, you didn't know that. You would take me unconscious. But, I mean, I suppose it could be a frightening idea for lots of people, for some people. But I actually, <laughs> I almost enjoyed it. I mean, Eric had gone a little fairly soon after that. I don't think he would. He, he's always sort of not understood how I could treat it as... So cavalierly. Yeah. But when you think what they actually did... Yeah, they, they bypassed I mean, four of your... Well, I mean, like, the first thing they do is saw down your breastbone with an electric saw, whoomph, like that. Yeah, because you've got like a pull cross back, scar on your chest. Yeah, they don't do that now. They do it. They've, they've improved on that. Davidson had something slightly different. They didn't cut the whole breastbone. Like, how are we embodied? What is our relationship to the body? And why is it that changing what the body is may alter who we are? When I look in the mirror, <laughs> right. I don't believe it. Right. That isn't me. That's not me. I'm looking at you from something that isn't actually here. Sunless Sea. Memories of my dad. Episode 13. New answers to old questions. This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust. In addition to the general content note that covers this series, this episode will talk about operations and medical procedures and will briefly touch on assisted dying or euthanasia towards the end. Also, for people who like to be warned of these things, the room that this conversation was recorded in was quite echoey and there are occasional moments where the background sound is quite noisy. But don't let any of that put you off because this is a great conversation. 
I'm here in Grassmarket Community Centre in Edinburgh, which is a charity and location that I've done some work for in the past. So I'm, I'm pleased to be able to be paying them for the room today because they deserve it. And I'm here with Jill Haddo to talk about embodiment and everyday cyborgs. Why am I talking to her? You'll be thinking at this moment in time. I think Jill was thinking that when I contacted her. And we'll see. We'll find out today. So hello, Jill. <laughs> Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. I love this city. So I'm really pleased to be back. I've done lots of different kinds of things in Edinburgh. So I've probably lived here for over a year of my life because I've been here for the festival, which is three weeks plus one normally. So I feel at home and comfortable. And it's sunny today. So it's a nice day to talk about everyday cyborgs and embodiment. Yeah, a sunny day in Edinburgh is one of the best, <laughs> one of the best things and quite a rarity in some, some ways. So could you give us an overview of who you are and what you do? So I'm a social scientist. I'm specifically a sociologist. So sociologists are interested in the way that society kind of works, really. But we're also interested in the groups within it and the individuals. So it's great. It's a, it's a vast topic to be interested in. The specific things that I get out of bed for in the morning to do research with is about the effect that new and emerging medical technologies are having on us us as being human beings but also us as being on bodies and us as being this kind of like wider society. I've been really lucky to be able to study things as diverse as genetics and the effect genetics is having on us, plantable medical devices which is what my current project is about and also organ transplants and other things like that. So it's really great. I'm very happy to be here and to be allowed to, to talk about some of it. Right and, and that's kind of one of the reasons that talking to you makes sense. I mean, apart from the fact that one of the organs that you have looked at is the heart, which is an organ that my dad has had problems with. I mean, he had a heart attack and he had a quadruple heart bypass. So there's the the organ element. But the other thing that, that my dad has kind of been about is watching and being kind of involved with technology changing over time. He was a, a wireless operator in the Second World War, but he was also an early adopter of the internet, you know, when, when the internet came around, was a documentary filmmaker, so he did a lot with technology, and a writer as well. So he watched the kind of changing technology, typewriter to word processor to computer. He has a friend who had a pig valve put in his heart. So he's he's come across the emerging technology that is around hearts, but he hasn't got anything himself. He's just had a straight up, uh, well, it's, so, so, actually, he's just had a straightforward quadruple heart bypass, which is quite... <laughs> which is quite like technologically dependent in itself but he hasn't got this new emerging technology inside his heart and when I say emerging technology that might make it sound like we're just talking about mechanics but we're not we're not just talking about electronics as I've mentioned we're talking about animals and when you said stem cells that is something which is related to growing new hearts independently and of course then there is also putting somebody else's heart inside a body this is an exciting topic in, in many ways and certainly to me as a science fiction fan and as somebody who maybe will need a new heart one day my dad's heart hasn't been great so I might be somebody who gets involved in this so can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you've done around embodiment and everyday cyborgs I can tell you where it all began actually and you're right it's a very exciting prospect 
I think these technologies that I research about sit on the fine line between what is science fact and what is science fiction. And like you, I'm an avid kind of science fiction fan. But um, however, where where I started to become interested in this was about 20 years ago. For a while, I, I, I was doing some research interviewing the families who had decided to donate the organs of their deceased or not. And at that time, I'd also become aware of research and literature that had shown that actually organ recipients, when they'd received a donated organ, expressed this kind of feeling that they'd changed in some way. So, for example, there would be discussions around well, I feel a different gender. So after a transplant, after they'd received an organ, they'd feel like they'd had an alteration in their gender aspects or they'd feel younger or there'd be different lifestyle behaviours such as they would prefer a different kind of music or a different kind of food. And I thought, well, that's really interesting in the fact that then an organ transplant may not in itself just be about transplanting an organ in some sense, there's also kind of carrying over of the donor's characteristics. So as I said, I've been aware of this literature and it always fascinated me. And certainly since Christian Barnard had conducted the first heart transplant in South Africa, there has been these narratives associated with organ transplantation. When Christian Barnard had done the first heart transplant and transplanted the heart into Louis Wachanski, Louis's wife, it's reported as saying, was concerned that that Louis might have changed. And as it turned out, the clinicians and the surgeons explained to her that it's not the heart that makes a person, it's the brain. So my research, Dave, is not about questioning whether these stories are true or not. You know, it's not my place to say this is just not the case, like this can't happen. The fact is these narratives about some kind of like identity change has been there since the beginning of the technology and continues today. So I'm curious, what does this tell us? What does this tell us about our relationship to our body, and that's a term that social scientists and other people like myself would call embodiment. The fact is, is that organ transplantation in a way is a victim of its own success because the more organs that we are able to replace, the more that we're going to need organs to replace them. And we don't have enough organs currently, so what are the alternatives? Even though my dad did not have a different organ implanted into him, you know, the doctor told him when he had his bypass, you're now like 30 years younger. And I think, you know, that had an effect on the way he thought of himself. You know, he certainly he boasted about that every, you know, all of the time and how, you know, now he could smoke and drink as much as he liked because he had another 30 years to put his heart through again. And also watching him experience a different change, like a change in his brain, in the organ of his brain through having a kind of stroke and developing vascular dementia. Vascular dementia and all forms of dementia are things that can cause personality changes and emotional changes and changes with the way we see our bodies and the way we see ourselves as can aging i mean 
Aging is something where we change our, our sense of embodiment all the time. And so I feel like it's really interesting because the sort of studies you're doing, I feel, tell us a lot about the people that you're looking at, but they also tell us a lot about people in all kind of different circumstances. You can kind of expand out from what you're doing to think about other people who are not in the same circumstances, but are experiencing similar kinds of processes. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I think it says a huge amount about how we think of ourselves as human beings and what it is that makes us human. For instance, in organ transplantation and in other sort of clinical procedures like it, it's very much a view of the body as a machine. We inhabit this machine whereby the brain, as you've discussed, is seen as the key location where we are what we are. And especially with the rise of kind of things like the neuro, the neurosciences more recently, the ability to image the brain. So now we have the brain as being the key site of selfhood and thinking is being this kind of like activity that the self does. There's a sort of, there's always this attempt to go back to life one. There's always this attempt to say, and occasionally, you know, there are, there, are, there are remembrances, occasional remembrances or partial remembrances of what it was like to be like that. But most of the time, I can't even remember that. I just have to try to live with what I am. My life, now, to me, is life number two. It's a difference, literally, from sort of when I became conscious of life and that, you know, year one or something, until... I was 87, I lived the same life, which was to me a life of normality within Earth's existence. Then I became demented, and at that point, as my neurons began to collapse or whatever, I actually moved into a second life, which is what the life I'm living now. I am not the person that I was before I was 87. I do feel I'm a different person. What I was really interested in, Dave, was this kind of like alternative idea that actually, yes, we do have this conception of ourselves as machines, driven, if you like, by the brain. But there's also an alternative, experiential view of the body whereby we're not just a brain, we are actually a person. And this person is fully experienced as a body, as a full body. So when we come then to kind of taking organs out and placing them in other people or putting machines in people or putting animals in people, when it's not entirely clear to that person how we experience a body, then they can feel definitely a kind of alteration in who they are. So going back to your dad, I mean, there is always this kind of like feeling of subjectivity change after any kind of illness. But what is different in terms of, say, organ transplantation, xenotransplantation, which I can come to talk about, or these kind of like mechanical devices that are turning into cyborgs, is that the changes that are reported are beyond what you would expect from recovery from an illness, say. After my dad had that quadruple heart bypass, he may have been told that he was practically 30 years younger, but he had a, a massive scar, you know, across his chest, which all of the people that we're talking about, well, most of them, I don't know enough about the exact procedures to say all of them, but many of them will also have that scarring. And so even if they 
wanted to forget about what was inside their body, they can't because they've got a big signpost. And why did you decide to focus on the heart? As you say, like the brain is one part that we often think about, although, you know, to speak to it, to that as well, like I often think that's, that's strange to locate everything in the brain because even if you think of the brain as being the most important organ, it has no purpose without all of the other organs which give it information. You know, skin, for example, is the, our biggest organ and that's how we experience so many things. And as my dad's got older, he has got skin complaints and things that have actually stopped him from being able to use that organ. And it's brought across to me how the skin is actually really important, as important as, you know, he's losing his sight and his hearing and his taste and his smell. But touch is the one we forget about a lot, I think. And it's definitely weird as well, like when you say about embodiment, I have a very love-hate relationship with my body, as I think most of us do. And I often try to forget I've even got one at all, or at least did when I was a younger person. And, and in fact, you know, part of learning who I am has been learning ways to be comfortable with my body. So, yeah, all of those things are, are things I'm thinking about when you're talking about this kind of new form of embodiment. The reason that I began looking at the heart was because it sits on this weird junction. The heart is a is an engine, but also the kind of epicenter of personal identity. And therefore, thinking about if any organ was to alter a person's identity, it would be the heart. So that's where I started researching the project Animal Mechanical and Me, the Search for Replaceable Hearts, funded by the Wellcome Trust. And that's that's my starting point, that it's the heart. But actually, what soon became really clear was that the stories around altered subjectivities from organ transplantation was just not about the heart it could happen with any other organ so these narratives of subjectivity alteration of identity change could occur regardless of whether it was a heart transplanted or a kidney or a lung then I became interested in well if it's not just about the heart that can alter how people feel about themselves what would happen if we then used animals to replace or repair human organs do people feel like a bit of an animal then if they if they have an animal placed inside their body and and I'm kind of joking but it's a serious question if people can sort of report that they felt differently after they had a human transplant why wouldn't they feel different if they had a pig organ. So that was the kind of second stage of the research that I'd got to. And I was aware of porcine or bovine heart valves being used. But what I was thinking about was something a lot more ambitious. And it's certainly been something that researchers and clinicians have been interested in for many, many years, is about how using an animal as a replaceable organ for a human one that's failing, how that could be made to work. And that procedure is xenotransplantation, and it has a long and checkered history of success because it's never been successful. Even though xenotransplantation or non-human animal to human transplantation has never been successful, I wanted to know how people thought they would 
kind of feel about that? My my father's friend, who, if all goes well, will will be featured in season two of this show. He's now sadly passed away. But when he did get this pig valve in inside his heart, he did start thinking of himself a little bit differently. He made jokes, but there was a lot of truth in the jokes that he was making. And I think you know it did give him a kind of existential crisis or sort of new sense of the world after it, after he got that that new valve. I think jokes and humor is uh, an interesting kind of way. Of- that we kind of play about with these ideas about the boundaries between humans and non-human animals because on the one sense xenotransplantation depends on humans being very similar to animals it depends on that similarity but at the same time we can't be too similar Dave you know that's kind of like that's kind of playing around with the boundaries of the natural boundaries if you like of what is human and what is animal So one of the things that I set out to look at was to see how people might feel if they were given a choice. Now, this choice doesn't exist in real life, but if they were given a choice between a human organ or an animal organ or a mechanical device to replace one of their organs, what would they prefer and what would that preference as I said, it's hypothetical, it's not given to anybody, but what would that preference to human, animal, mechanical tell us about the relationship that we have with our bodies? Humans like to think of ourselves as, as above animals, right? Yeah. We like to think of ourselves as different from animals. So to be reminded that we're not is something that, well, we are in some ways different from some animals, but to be reminded that we're on a continuum and other animals can, could ha- develop forms of consciousness and all of that, then there's ethical questions about if we see animals as having forms of consciousness, you know, should we really be taking their organs from them in the first place? I mean, what would you choose out of the, out of the options oh okay so the options were human so in the human category there was the choice to have either a 3d bioprinted organ which again is a highly experimental procedure it's not even moved out the the laboratory yet but the idea behind it is that you take cells from a person and print an organ okay so that essentially makes the donor and the recipient the same person which is very very interesting that was one option the other option was an organ from a deceased stranger which is currently the way that we uh, procure organs just now and the last human option was an organ from a living donor and then it was animal and then the last choice was uh, mechanical so I guess going back to your question what would I choose I would probably choose what Everybody in my research chose, and that was to have a 3D bioprinted organ from self. Yeah. What would you choose, Steph? What would you go for? I mean, thinking about those options, that's probably the most, the easiest one to go for because it doesn't require having to deal with somebody else having died. It doesn't require the existential element of bringing a, an animal in. I mean, I guess it's between that and the mechanical heart for me. But both of them are dependent on human ability to create technology. Both of them, like not just the mechanical heart. Part of me is like, do I want mechanics inside me when I know how often mechanics break? Like, you know, how many how many new microphones have I had to buy? I don't want to do that for my heart. But then I also have similar fears about 3D printing of a heart because we might think we're doing that really well and it might turn out that we haven't. Uh, a little bit late for me if I was having the, the, the transplant to, uh, to deal with that. And I know that when they're doing stuff to do with stem 
stem cells around hearts and like injecting stem cells to grow inside people's bodies that that that's a very early technology and some of that works and some of it doesn't and i don't necessarily want to be a guinea pig uh, mm-hmm. as they say although you know it, it seems like guinea pigs get a, a bad lot really we should we should maybe be the guinea pigs a bit more often than guinea pigs but yeah those would be the two and probably i'd go for the 3d printed heart just because it's a fleshy real kind of human thing yes exactly exactly and i think it potentially would avoid all the ethical issues around animal transplantation So it was a survey and some focus groups. The survey was of a thousand young people and it was posing the question, you know, to them, if you had the choice, what would you choose, human, animal or mechanical? And we tried to kind of like investigate whether issues around, say, vegetarianism would make you more or less likely to accept or reject an animal organ. And what came out very strongly was that there was this blanket rejection, regardless of whether you were vegetarian or religious beliefs or gender, there was just full blanket rejection of animal transplantation. And I think this is testament to this idea that in some ways a fleshy, I like the fact that you used the word flesh there, but in the sense that a fleshy organ can somehow contaminate us with the once living characteristics of the donor. Whereas, as you have also pointed out, machines don't do that. Machines don't have this kind of fleshy backstory to them. And in that sense, they're, they're very clean. And instead of contamination, what they can do, though, is cause infection, malfunction, and, and breaking. But one of the things that I think is interesting about the technological kind of side of things and in that I mean like a medical device an implant especially the focus of my research was on people's experiences of living with an implantable cardiac defibrillator was the fact that sort of culturally we seem very aware of technology and by that I mean we have this kind of idea that And I think it comes from science fiction and from literature that if we put machines into our body, that in some way we become less humane because our body in some way becomes less human. So if we put a machine into our body, I'm thinking like Robocop, for example, there's a there's a cyborg okay, for you. I'm thinking the Cybermen in Doctor Who, but not necessarily Terminator. Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, he's an android, right? He's not a cyborg. Why the cyborg is especially interesting, I feel, is because it signifies this hybridity of technology and organism. You become a techno-hybrid, if you like. And by using implantable cardiac defibrillators, for example, these kind of smart technologies to treat organs that are failing 
or that could potentially fail by using these we are creating cyborgs and what does that actually feel like when we create a cyborg in real life is compared to the cyborg in science fiction the study was with young people right mm-hmm. and it's interesting to me that like young people would still have the kind of resistance to body modifications because we're living in a time when people really modify their bodies a lot you know the tattoos piercings increasingly more and more different kinds of ways of of approaching how we modify our body people change their sex there's all sorts of things we can do with science that people do embrace i mean plastic surgery all sorts of things like whatever your aesthetic is there's probably body modifications out there for you like it's easy for people to feel superior to people who get plastic surgery for example but often you know they've got loads of tattoos all over their body saying that as well reminds me that you know we're a very specific culture but cross-culturally people modify their bodies that's been going on for for centuries it's interesting that we have been making ourselves into cyborgs like or in in a very different sense in the sense that if everything we use as tools is technology which i think is is one way we can think about technology right then we've been being sort of cyborgs for years in some ways brilliant point really really good point i think there are several ways that the cyborg the everyday cyborg differs from the body modifications that we undergo as human beings and we've done for centuries and we choose to do them Dave I think that's the important point there is that we choose to aesthetically change our image for me that's really important because even when it comes to biohackers people who choose to put technology into their bodies, such as radio frequency IDs, maybe putting extra sensory devices on top of their head. And, you know, these kind of like biohacking preferences are built on choice, whereas the cyborg, the cyborg condition that I'm referring to in the everyday is not about choice. And neither is it about aesthetics or image. It's about challenging the integrity of your own body through the placement of a machine that can act without your control. And going back to your point about skin, the skin's really important in this because what I'm interested in is the way that the skin is a boundary to maintain the integrity of your blood, guts and organs. When you put an ICD in, like is when you do any other surgical procedure, and as you stated earlier, you know there's a scar, and that scar is a reminder that the integrity of your body has been breached, not just by a surgery, but in the cyborg's case, by what I refer to following the original definition of cybernetic devices that the cyborg is created by the cybe which stands for cybernetic and the org which stands for organism so an icd and other medical technologies and moving forward there will be similar technologies that are cheaper they're smaller they're faster they're more efficient and when we go back to the survey with young people the first choice relating to what a person would like for their organ to be repaired or replaced with was human first of all but second was machine and lastly was animal for all the reasons that we've spoken about earlier. The original definition of cyborg was invented in the late 60s and was a way to describe how 
men, and I do mean men there, um, men would, uh, would require their, their body modified to live in, in space. So that's a long way away from the Cybermen and Doctor Who or the Robocop. We're talking about a different type of cyborg. And my definition of cyborg referring to the people who live with implantable cardiac defibrillators, for example, my definition of cyborg has more in common with the original definition than with the science fiction cyborg. Yeah, I know a guy who's got an implanted cardiac defibrillator he's a, a poet Richard Tyrone Jones who's also come up to Edinburgh over the years and done things and I, de- I think it definitely had a really significant effect on his way of thinking about himself I mean certainly it, he made a number of shows about it which is always a sign that if you're you know if you're a, if you're an artist uh, and you can't stop talking about something you pr- it probably has a big effect on you a little bit like you know for example uh, somebody who can't stop talking about his 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 old dad um <laughs> I guess the heart is about rhythms as well, isn't it, within you? And so I guess for a poet or someone who's used to rhythms, it can really throw you off when you, you, your, your rhythms change. The second piece of research that I did, apart from the survey and asking people if they had the choice, what would they choose, human-animal mechanical, was actually interviewing individuals who'd had an implantable cardiac defibrillator placed inside their inside their bodies and and how that actually felt to become this techno hybrid individual if you like the ability to adjust to the changes in their body but as well to adjust to the changes in their life that, that occurred and and I think rhythm is a really good way of, of thinking about that actually Dave I think the, their own rhythm of life altered dramatically after after they became cyborg initially and it takes quite a, a long time to adjust to not just this kind of like techno hybrid identity but also to the fact that you have a machine inside you that works that you don't control that doesn't have a human operator so yeah I like the rhythm and it's when the heart the ICD itself senses that your heart is going into a dangerously fast rhythm that will then set off quite a huge electric shock and that's another way in which living the cyborg life is actually a very vulnerable life you're not like Robocop as I said or you know any of the other these science fiction cyborgs actually the process of cyborgization and the everyday is about creating this kind of like new vulnerability. If you get too excited, you get an electric shock from something that's inside your body. I mean, that that would... You know, I'm quite an anxious person, so I, I, I imagine I would be getting electric shocks all the time. And so, yeah, that's quite a terrifying idea to me. It's the actual physical changes in your skin and that sort of... You know, that's... Um, the ultimate signature of age, I suppose. Oh, no, I've got sort of various conditions, you know. Arthritis and light carpal tunnel syndrome. In the end, there is a kind of descent, you know, which is in fact backwards. When I was researching ideas around the human or the animal, 
people thought that it would have a very powerful change on their identity, that they would become, they would take on that characteristic from the other human or from, from an animal. Whereas with a machine, that wasn't the case. That didn't, didn't seem to be important to the people that I interviewed, that they didn't take on the characteristics of a machine, just the opposite. It made them vulnerable. They thought about it quite a lot. And it wasn't until they'd got over the alienation And I use alienation then as exactly the term because the ICD is an alien to them and their body. It's an alien that's causing alienation. And until they become used to the fact that it's there and it's doing something for them rather than doing something to them, there's this kind of like adjustment to the to the cyborg life, if you like. And one of the, the things you've done through your work is you've put together or arranged or like overseen a kind of collection of short films made around these kind of experiences which I've watched on YouTube and I really enjoyed all of them they were created mostly by the people who experienced them and that's something I I believe quite strongly in and yeah when you talked about it on YouTube you, you talked about like communicating people's lived experiences and also unheard voices which are two things I'm I'm very interested in 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 doing and like it's what I think podcasts are for mm. really to get into places and to speak to people that traditional media doesn't can you say a little bit more about that part of, the, of your work I think that was definitely one of the best experiences I've had when doing research is actually being allowed to co-create I think outputs so with the funding from the Wellcome Trust I had initially planned to do an animation with a guy called Cameron DeGood. We worked on an animation called Electrifying ICD Heart. And this was a discussion that Cameron and I had had about how we could represent the idea of the symbolic heart versus the heart is a machine. So that worked really well and we really, really enjoyed it. But what I really wanted to do was to generate stories from either people who are very rarely asked about new technologies and also to help, I think, the people that I had interviewed to vocalise their own experience. During the interviews, I met this wonderful, wonderful person called Maggie. She just received her ICD, her implantable cardiac defibrillator. She started to keep a diary about her experiences. So I put her in touch with a filmmaker that I know, and they created the most beautiful film around Maggie's experiences called Maggie's ICD Story. I mean, it's only like two or three minutes long, but it's it's just so powerful. But thinking about Maggie's ICD Story... I then realized that the experiences that she was she was relating were experiences that I found throughout all the people that I had interviewed. So what I then did was used some of the quotes from the interviews and pulled together a kind of narrative, if you like, a story of cyborgization and that animation by Helen Cowley together with the filmmaker Ross Siegelmeister, portrays beautifully, I think, an animation about what it's like to become a cyborg. They were two wonderful outputs that were co-created with the individuals who had ICDs. So it's a very important way, I think, to use creative methods in order to engage everybody with experiences such as becoming a cyborg. But the other thing that I really wanted to do was to consult or work with or to allow say, young people from maybe marginalised backgrounds or just young people who are never really asked 
about these technologies, about what they think about the ethics of, say, xenotransplantation, how we could work with them, giving them the skill sets to create a film, but also to give them the freedom to make any film that they wanted to about human organ transplantation or xenotransplantation or cyborgization. So for over a year and a half, we all worked together. There was myself, there was six young people, but there was also like animators, producers. We all came together and we produced this film called Broken Wings, which is a fantastic story about how a young girl becomes acclimatised too after the initial sort of social stigma of turning into a, a humanimal, a humanimal. Yeah. And that's one of the terms that one of the young people came up with to describe the kind of hybridity of a human and an animal, which I just thought was amazing. So I think we should definitely be doing more kind of uh, filmmaking <laughs> stuff like that Dave it was just so good yeah it's a way of communicating to a wider audience making those animations but it's also a way of communicating these intangible things some things you know you can only write songs about or make animations about or films about some things you can't quite get into a paragraph or a or a paper you know not everything can be easily expressed in that way so I, I really enjoyed those those videos for that reason you know that it was it was giving me a real sense or at least I feel like it gave me a sense of what it might be like I mean this is the thing you know we only ever know really how we feel about the things we see but I felt like I was getting it but what are ways that people might try to approach the feelings of not understanding or being in control of their bodies after these processes like that film dramatizes for us what are the kinds of ways that you have seen people have become acclimatized to these changes when I was speaking to people the strategies if you like I mean that sounds like a very conscious source of action it wasn't and it isn't at all like that but the strategies that people would use in order to reinsert some kind of control over the cybernetic device if you like inside them was to locate the responsibility for it firing for it shocking them. I mean, this is shock in the sense of it was unexpected shock and it was electrical shock, so really, really painful. And you're always living on that edge, you know what I mean? You would always be, like, waiting on the shock, but the way in which people would kind of adjust or acclimatise to the kind of new vulnerability was to suggest that they had responsibility for doing it. So maybe they drank too much coffee, or like you said earlier, Dave, if they worried too much, or if they'd exercised too much and the rhythm of their heart had went too fast. So that was one way in which they kind of sort of said, you know, even though there is this machine that's so intimate to me, I mean, you couldn't get any closer to a technology than it being inside of you, even though it's so close to me. And at the same time, I have no control over it. I will try and reinsert some element of responsibility and control that it was my fault. And the other way that people talked about becoming used to it was through considering it as something that was beneficial for them. The ICD is for me. It's not doing these things to me. It's doing it for me so I can go back to the life, to the identity that I had before I had it implanted.
come across in your research anybody or groups of people who were more resistant to the idea of even like why are we why are we meddling why are we prolonging life longer I guess for me that's a pertinent question because you know my dad had a heart attack and has subsequently developed dementia and things like that his life is not so great now he wouldn't necessarily want his life to continue if he had a choice about that which he doesn't mm. sadly and so for me the question of like was his quadruple heart bypass although brilliant for me I got to have many more years with my dad than I was anticipating which was brilliant but like was it ultimately did that prolonging of his life lead to these other things attacking him in other ways that he maybe never would have got to if he'd have died cleanly <laughs> if you see what I mean with that heart yeah. attack but I think your studies have mostly been looking at younger people and I think this is less likely to be an issue around those people but has that come up? I think it's such a difficult question Dave isn't it? We're so on the one hand so I'm writing I'm just about finished a book called Embodiment in the Everyday Cyborg Technologies of Altered Subjectivity and to get a plug in there for it and one of the conclusions that I kind of reach is we can't stop doing this we can't stop putting devices into our bodies looking for ways to prolong life it's just inevitable so i would argue that sort of cyborgization is almost as inevitable as the desire to keep prolonging our lives i just sort of think that we're actually introducing new ways of being ill i call it unhealth that's what i call it at the minute but it's it's an unhealth it's a state of being where your quality of life is altered by the therapy that's been used to treat you, but the treatment itself is really difficult to live with. We kind of stop seeking new ways to answer old questions, you know, and new technologies. The techno-scientific fix, I call it. The idea that the fix is as addictive as the ability to fix something, to mend something. So we're becoming increasingly reliant on technology to just keep our bodies going on and on and on. And um, eventually I, I suggest that we will come across a 21st century identity crisis whereby we no longer really know who we are because we've technologized our bodies to the point that, you know, it's, like, it's totally different to the person that, that we once were. So I'm not really answering your question, I realize, because I think another question is around who are the people who benefit from the technology, which you kind of sort of said about you felt it was it was you that benefited, more so maybe than your dad. Mm-mm. I mean, it's, it's a hard call to make. Yeah. I mean, like, it's like hindsight is always easier to say, like, well, maybe that would have been a better end point for his life. So he probably would have chosen, if he'd have known in advance, 10 more good years and then the bad stuff's to start happening. He may very well have chosen that. Like, once the bad stuff... Like once, once uh, that's a very kind of judgmental way of saying that dementia, but once kind of old age and dementia and those sorts of things started to happen to him, he definitely would have chosen to end his life. I think we're never going to stop looking for ways to prolong life. It's almost like an ethical and a moral normalization of using technology to prolong life. The quality of life, I think, 
is secondary to the idea of the quantity of life, you know, how long you can get rather than how much of it is a good, is a good life, if you like. Right. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's the thing. My dad would definitely choose 10 more quality years. But when it becomes about quantity, that's his problem now is that he's got more life than he's going to be happy and healthy. in. he is kept alive by the drugs he takes and, and all of the things that, that kind of keep him alive. But is he enjoying a good quality of life during the time he is now living? I don't know. I think the one thing that I would finish with, and it relates to your question, Dave, about the quality of life, is about who gains from this. You know, in a certain sense, what I think we should also be thinking about is the social stratification of cyborgization, which is easy for me to say, but basically means, you know, for example, in the case of implantable cardiac defibrillators, although they introduce a kind of new form of vulnerability to some of the individuals, most of these individuals are men. So there's a very gendered solution i think in this technology to that so yeah so sorry no no that's a very it's a very important point i'm sure it's gendered race and class and all sorts of things also really factor into that who has the resources available to have these these things happen to them that's exactly it totally that's exactly and i think these are the types of questions as well that we need to factor into these types of discussions is it benefiting the person who's making these choices and, and who receives the benefits i guess if you can call them that Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. If you go to podcastviews.com, then there's a survey there that I'd really appreciate you filling in. It only takes a few minutes and if you do it, you can be entered into a prize draw for a £50 Amazon voucher. This survey was created by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust so that they can get an idea of the impact that their funding has had. And if you are filling out that survey, Down to a Sunless Sea counts as Getting Better Acquainted because Getting Better Acquainted is the podcast that it evolved out of and that it's produced by. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at sunless pod you can email the show at down to a sunless pod at gmail.com the episodes and the show notes are all collected together at down to a sunless pod.com thanks so much to dr jill haddo for being an amazing guest i'll put links to the youtube videos mentioned in the show notes for this episode you can find jill on twitter at Jill Haddo, and do keep an eye out for her upcoming book, Embodiment and the Everyday Cyborg, Technologies of Altered Subjectivity. If you go back to before the Industrial Revolution, if you go back to 1650, yeah. the world between 
William the Conqueror in 1650, or being a bit later, 1730 or something like that, there'd have been less difference you know, over all that period of time than there has been in sort of every 10 years since. It's not only that things have changed, but the speed of change has grown.